Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. Now, one of the easiest ways to learn is to listen to people that have done it before you. We often do this when it comes to learning new skills for a profession. We do an apprenticeship, we attend university, or we have a tutor. So why don't we listen to people about living life, as it seems to be one of the most challenging adventures we all are trying to navigate through. My fun conversation today is with Emrys Westercott, who is the Professor of Philosophy at New York's Alfred University. Emrys's most recent book is titled The Wisdom of Frugality, where he examines why, for more than two millennia, so many philosophers and people with reputations for wisdom have been advocating frugality and simple living as the key to the good life. In this episode, Emrys and I discuss how simple living has changed over the centuries, the role our expectations play, simple pleasures, and holding our materialistic desires in check, along with the importance friendship has in our happiness, and one of Emrys's classes, Tight Watery, The Good Life on a Dollar a Day. For listeners in Newcastle and Byron Bay here in Australia, Emrys is making his way down under for the first time this August. On August 1 in my hometown of Newcastle, the Newcastle Writers Festival is hosting a special evening with Emrys from 6.30pm at the Conservatorium of Music, and then directly after Emrys, award-winning British journalist and best-selling author Christina Lamb will be talking about her reporting experiences from the world's war zones as well as her best-selling books. I personally can't wait to attend this beautiful evening. Emrys is then heading north for the Byron Bay Writers Festival, which is running from August 4 to 6. I'll have links to tickets and everything else we discuss in the show notes at liveimmediately.com. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and tapping into all of Emrys's wisdom. He is super interesting and I love the way that he looks at and questions the world. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Emrys Westercott. Hi, Emrys. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. And whereabouts in this beautiful world do I find you today? Uh, I live in Alfred, New York, which is western New York, not to be mistaken for New York City. It's about um, 70 miles south of Rochester on Lake Ontario. Oh, beautiful. I actually spent some time in upstate New York last year in a beautiful town called Canaan which is in Columbia County over near the border of Massachusetts. Um, I know it. Yeah, it was, um, it was beautiful. We stayed in this refurbished uh, barn on, this, on about five acres, and it was, um, it was absolutely wonderful. So you are the professor of philosophy at uh, New York's Alfred University, and your latest book is titled The Wisdom of Frugality. Firstly, thank you for all the work that you do and, and the books that you put out. Oh, well, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Uh, I enjoy writing them. And, you, you know, we seem to live in this busy, fast-paced world. Is wanting to simplify our lives and frugalness a new thing? Um, I don't think it's a new thing because um, you can go back in the history of philosophy and you'll find that the ancient philosophers from Greek, uh, from Greece and Rome were 
saying the same kind of thing, especially the Roman Stoics were saying, you know, that life is in Rome is hectic and it's, uh, uh, I don't know, there's corruption and there's greed and, and extravagance and, and there's a, a tremendous movement there, a kind of back to the land, back to simplicity. So in that sense, it's nothing new. However, in ancient Rome, the, um, the people were writing for a, a relatively small audience since most people would be illiterate. I think what's different now is that, uh, of course, the modern world is much faster, much more complicated. Um, it's in some ways, uh, for many people, harder to, as it were, just go back to the land or get up the grid. I mean, if they want to pursue their professional careers. And, um, and in, so in that sense, it's a kind of uh, a revival of an ancient wisdom. And but I think too, like in in some parts, it is a little bit harder in today's world to maybe kind of go off grid and and go to the country and things like that. But on other on like on the other hand, I guess with technology, you can also maybe live that simpler life on a farm while still being connected and and working kind of a modern day life. If you know what I mean, that's a good point. But um, you you are then. Um, there's a way in which you're, you are achieving a simplicity, but there's a way in which your your life is now very dependent upon modern technology. And you may have to buy a computer. You may have to buy a smartphone. You may have to pay your smartphone plan. You may have to get the computer guy in to repair the technology when it doesn't work. Um, it, it's one of the things I talk about in the book is how there are these cross currents, how in some ways, yes, you can be, you can live simply and you can be more self-sufficient uh, using modern technology. I mean, another example would be, for instance, let's say with photography. Now, we don't have to send away our prints to a Photoshop to be printed. We can use our digital cameras and then print them out on our own computer. In that sense, we're more self-sufficient. But of course, we're also heavily dependent upon a technology that most of us don't understand. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, so would you then say that the the kind of the modern day simple living is is actually just a tree change compared to ancient simple living um i think i th i think it's it's different in a number of ways uh, what one way in which it's different is is this i think i think it's in some ways it's more of a minority taste now although it could be a, a growing taste as as um, you know, society develops and as things in some ways get more and more complex. And, and in some ways, the technology becomes more oppressive and creates various social problems. It could be that we're seeing a, you know, the beginnings of, a, of quite a, a, a transformation in our culture. But um, here's one big difference, I think. In the past, uh, for the majority of people, if you could live 70 years without famine, without plague, without civil war, without gross injustice and oppression from, you know, your, the ruling class and without um, losing too many children in infancy, you were doing pretty well. That was that would be a, a life that you'd you'd will, willingly accept uh, early on. You'd say that's a good life. Whereas today, if I say to my students, if I say here's the life I've got mapped out for you, right? You'll, you, you, won't, you won't die of plague, you won't die of famine, uh, you won't lose too many kids, uh, you know, you won't be thrown in prison uh, in a, in a rotten dungeon, right? You'll just live a very, very ordinary life on the farm uh, for 70 years. A lot of them would say that's not enough. They'd say that's, that's kind of boring. 
Um, and that's a difference. We, we're much more secure in, in many ways now than we used to be. And we also have many more recreational opportunities than we used to have. And that does create a, a difference in attitude. People, people expect more from life now than they used to, I think. And yeah, I, I think definitely there is that, that expectation because I think that's some of the, the struggles that, that I battle with myself. On, on one hand, I, I always say that, you know, time is the true currency. And on one hand, I, I, I really want right. to have this time to, to spend with my daughter. And when we did our big trip last year overseas where we packed, donated or sold everything that we, we owned here in Australia and, and, went on a um a family adventure through North America when she was four at that beautiful pivotal age to spend all of that time with her and now that we've returned trying to really foster that time and that family time but then on the other hand really wanting those experiences and travel and you know we like skiing and things like that which all come with an expense and trying to find that that happy balance right a, a lot of um even simple pleasures, what we call simple pleasures, can be um, quite uh, involved. I mean, a good example is skiing. You could say, now skiing is a simple pleasure in the sense that, what is it? It's the rushing downhill at high speed on the snow with the wind in your face. I mean, it's nothing terribly complicated. But of course, not only is it, you know, you have to get to the place and you have to buy your ticket and all this kind of thing, and you're dependent on the ski lift technology, you also got to buy your equipment and uh <laughs> and in fact, it, you know, uh, not many people who ski today use skiing equipment that's 25 or 30 years old because the the style of skis change, the style, style of skiing change. Even in something like that, there is fashion, isn't there? Um, oh. Yeah, go on. Oh, I was going to say most definitely there's again it's once you achieve something or once you can obtain something and then that level of happiness kind of decreases when the next and the greatest or the shiniest new thing comes out. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how how um, we manage to turn the um, the simplest things sometimes into into competitive endeavors. I, I'm a keen vegetable gardener, and I'll admit that uh, two of my best friends here both have vegetable gardens, and uh, we regularly go and inspect each other's gardens to check that uh, they're not doing too much better than us. <laughs> and so do you do, do you do that with them, or is this like on a solo mission in the middle of the night with a flashlight? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we 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 help each other a little bit. If you know, if one person grows some seedlings, that you know, and they've got some excess, they might share. But um, but even even something like vegetable gardening. I mean, I get of course once you buy a packet of seeds from a catalogue, you then get the gardening catalogue, and it's full of um, devices, uh, you know, compost mixers and and um, raised beds and all kinds of you know and and upside down tomato growers, all which are quite expensive, and and it's quite easy to turn something as basic and as traditional and simple as vegetable gardening into a fairly expensive hobby. Oh, most definitely. I, I, I know that when I've tried, like I can grow herbs pretty well, um, but vegetables and things like that that I've tried, I've, I've found that I've actually spent more money trying to grow these things than it, than it would be to, to buy them at the supermarket. And I know that it's, it's more than just a cost. It's also knowing how the vegetables have grown and, and, and what kind of um, chemicals or non-chemicals that you, you, you're putting on the plants. But it's, um, you're so true. Like things just start to, to add up in cost with everything that we do. Right. I mean, I, I'm a certified kind of cheapskate. And so I, I really try hard 
not to um, not to spend more on my vegetable garden than the vegetables would cost. But uh, but at some point, you know, you um, it, it, it's true. You have to you have to do it for a, on a certain scale and for a few years, actually, for it to be to be a, a genuine saving. I think I'm at that point now where it is a genuine saving. Yeah. Uh, but certainly, you know, I don't do it for the for the saving. I do it because I love getting out in the garden, you know. Yeah, most definitely. And so how do you become a certified cheapskate? <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's it's part of my name. First of all, I'm a hypocritical cheapskate. I <laughs> I, um, I definitely um, can be radically inconsistent and and, and this kind of thing. But uh, um, it's, the, it's an interesting question because I think there are different kinds of cheapskates. So I'll tell you the kind I am. I really I really don't like waste. Um, a good example is, is food waste. I, I you know something in me really revolts at the idea of throwing away good food and so uh my idea would be you know as it were you know every rotten man- banana should be turned into uh, banana bread and every um leftover vegetable should be i don't know put together and put in the freezer ready for a vegetable soup however i'll admit i do encounter resistance from the family you know what i think of as leftovers they think of as halfway towards compost <laughs> One thing that I did really love when we were traveling through America, and that was the seasons, you, you, you know, where, where I was in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, and then also Breckenridge, Colorado, Providence, Rhode Island, and upstate New York, there were, we really witnessed the four seasons. And here in Australia, we, we don't have that. But I noticed that the food and the activities that people did, or the, the obviously the clothes that they wore, and, and there was always this change in season. And like, you know, you speak about food and not wasting food. It's all about kind of seasonal eating and, and really nurturing those seasons, which I think America will, in that kind of northern part of America, it really has and it's really great to cherish well it's certainly true you know where we live you get these um, roadside stands where you can buy corn in corn season and strawberries in strawberry season and you get the do you have in australia the csa's the community supported agriculture do you know what i'm talking about there uh, it's where it's where someone grows it has a small farm let's say or a big market garden and people subscribe and pay a certain amount for the season or for the year and then they go along each week and fill their basket full of whatever's growing yeah we do have those yeah yeah um and uh, yeah we've got those around here and so that does encourage seasonal um eating and and i think you know seasonal eating is great because i think the quality of the food tends to be better but it's also true isn't it in the modern world that we we just do expect uh, in a way, to be able to eat any food, any time, any place, uh, as it were, you know, the uh, a lot of restaurants, good restaurants, won't necessarily be serving seasonal dishes. They'll just import, you know, I mean, import uh, apples from New Zealand up to, you know, New York, which we grow our own apples, but they'll still still be imported from the other side of the world. Yeah, it's. I think that's, and I don't know whether that is a. Is that it can obviously it must be a consumer push thing because we always just want things when we want them, and uh, you know I, th- I think it will take a lot of people to actually change the supermarkets' um, perspective on those kinds of things. Right, I think um, uh, it's a pretty interesting aspect of of modern life and and of the whole of simple living is how uh, without realizing it, unless we become aware of it, we can become quite. Um, impatient and intolerant when our expectations, which 
for most of history would have seemed quite absurd and fantastic. But our modern expectations, when they're thwarted, we really um, we really don't like it. The comedian uh, Louis C.K. does a wonderful. He has a wonderful routine where he's he's on an aeroplane. And, you know, he's he's doing something like he's trying to watch a, a football game from the other side of the world, live streaming it sort of thing. And and the Internet connection is not very good on the airplane. And he starts getting really angry. And, and then he stops and he says, what's going on here? You know, here I am flying in a in a, in a, <laughs> in a sort of luxury airplane, you know, 30,000 feet, you know, above the ground, uh, 500 miles an hour. And I'm trying to watch a, a live event from 10,000 miles away. And it's the, the connection's not quite perfect. And so I get angry. But to to any previous generations, this would have just been magic. Yeah, it's so true. It's um I've actually seen that that um that um stand up that he does and it it is quite hilarious. Yeah. He's a very funny man. But like do do you think that like with simple living then we need to lower our expectations? Um I th- I think it it, it would be good. It would be good to be more appreciative, mm-hmm. I think, of, of what we've got. I mean, I'm not sure. It's not easy to lower ex- your expectations. Mm-hmm. I mean, who amongst us? I mean, most of us nowadays use Wi-Fi every day. And if the Wi-Fi connection isn't very good, you know, we, you know, we get annoyed. It, it's, um, that's a, you know, a lot of that has to do with one's kind of native personality to some extent, unless you, you really make an effort to, to become more mindful. And I, and I think that is... One one aspect of simple living that I think is tremendously important is that taking a step back and reflecting, being aware of, you know, for instance, of what um, what you can be appreciative of. Also, not just what you can be appreciative of, but also what your what really matters in life. When you perhaps know this, but I've I've taught a course a few times at the, my university. It's uh, just at one evening a week, and it, the course was called Tight Watery, The Good Life on a Dollar a Day. And it, it, some people ridicule the course, saying, oh, my God, is that what students are learning in college today? You know, um, but actually, it was, it was a, a fun course, and it was partly serious. We read classical philosophers and uh, you know, Seneca, and, and um, uh, we read Thoreau and people like that. But we also um, – there, there was a humorous side to it as well. We had one class where the people learned to cut each other's hair, and at the end of the – at the end of the uh, the semester, we um, we had a class banquet for ten dollars, you know, where everyone had to bring along their cheapest depression era recipes. But my point here is this: that what I say to the students towards the end is, is that really the class isn't about cutting coupons and about living on a dollar a day. So it's actually really about trying to decide what your authentic values are, what really matters, because because I actually think that it's perfectly sensible for someone to spend fair amount of money doing something that really really matters to them and that, that has real value for them what i think is uh, where, where 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 i'd be critical of is when we're tempted to spend money on something that isn't really an authentic value but we're just sort of um, going along with society's pressures i mean an example i think would be and this might be controversial with some of your listeners but an example would be when people spend vast amounts of some of money on a wedding when they can't really afford even a down payment on a house or something like when it, it, they're going to put themselves into credit card debt for the first two years of their married life because they're buying such an expensive ring or such an expensive dress or having such an expensive reception or something like that i think that that would be a, a foolish and 
in some ways a slightly inauthentic use of money because i think what's going on there is that they've they've kind of got it into their heads that that true love mean you know you you express your true love by spending a vast quantity of money which i don't think is correct no i 100% agree with you there and and i find with myself when i i went through a bit of a purging process and we ended up kind of purging nearly 70% of our belongings and it and that was really freeing from a from a, a physical space point of view, but also a mental space point of view. And 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 now kind of going through that process and actually seeing the benefits, for me, I I really struggle bringing things back in. Like I I can maybe want something or necessarily need something, and I I will try not to purchase that item for a long period of time. Um, I before I you know buy anything, I put it on on a wish list, and it has to be there for at least thirty days before I buy it. So I so I so it won't be an impulse purchase. Well, I'll, I'll freely and frankly admit we have too much stuff. We we um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say we absolutely need, we don't we don't not at the point where we need a professional declutterer to come in. But uh, I could really do with. Uh, lightning all over most of it is uh, is in the basement <laughs> <laughs> but in 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 like you know we, we, with your book you you kind of really go back in time and, and we're learning from some of the the smartest brains of, of history and and each generation or period in time i guess suffers from this fast pace in which day-to-day life travels and and in each current period in time looks back at the past and we always think oh the past it would be so much easier and so much slower then and if only we could we could be living there it would be so much easier but we, we don't seem to listen to the lessons that the past tries to pass on to us why do you think that is um that that is a very good question. Uh, first of all, you, you're dead right that nostalgia is uh, is very old. It goes back to the you know some of the the ancient, most ancient literature. They're looking back to a golden age, you know, and complaining about people today nothing like as good as the people in the past. And that, why don't we listen to past wisdom? One reason, um, and this goes back to something I said earlier, is that particularly in the last 200 years, the world has changed quite dramatically. I think that um, until the advent of the Industrial Revolution, until modernity kicked in, I think that the the reason people didn't listen too much to the wisdom of the past was that most people didn't read and were, most people were not scholars at all. They they basically got their beliefs and their ideas, you know, from their, their, the church or from their social superiors or just from parents and grandparents in perhaps in oral cultures. Uh, to Perhaps in oral cultures, there, there was more sort of listening to the past. But to nowadays, I think the reason is simply that the world has changed so much. I, I think we often... Um, forget that we really you have to kind of stop and think about it it's a a radically different world the um if you go back say you know 200 years i think that um if someone could time travel from the past to i don't know two or three hundred years ago they wouldn't have been so completely bemused by what they saw it would have been a recognizable planet earth with human beings on it but i think if you time travel people back who, you know, landed them in, in the middle of, you know, 21st century Sydney or something, I think they would be, um, they, they would not know what was going on. It would be completely bewildering because everything's changed, the Industrial Revolution and then the, the um, 
and now the computer revolution has just changed everything. And as a result, uh, you know, our, our whole form of life has changed. And it, with it, uh, to some extent, our belief systems are, and like we were saying earlier, our expectations. And like with the research that you've done, do you think that there is an era in time where the people got simple living the best? Like they, they, they did it the best? Um, I don't think that it, when you say the people, I don't think there's any kind of country that, I, you know, or nation or, or people that I would particularly point to. Um, I think that... Um, you could talk about some pre-modern societies in, in all parts of the world where, you know, perhaps hunter-gatherer type societies where they, they had things, you know, they, 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 things were in balance, things were in a kind of equilibrium. Mm. And, and, and there's much to be, much to admire there. At the same time, when you point to those societies, you have to recognize that what they don't have is what we call civilization, culture. I mean, they don't have, you know, um, of orchestras they don't have you know art galleries they don't have um, football stadiums and you know olympic games or cinemas you know i mean lots of things that we 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 like if you pointing to um and not particularly a particular people but a group of people there's one that i admire particularly was the ancient philosopher epicurus he um He's one of the great champions of simple living. And he lived in just that he, he bought a piece of land just outside Athens and he made a garden, quite a big garden. And he lived in this, he lived there with a group of friends and they, um, they grew stuff in the garden. They probably had some slaves, but the slaves were, you know, it was, if you were going to be a slave, it was probably pretty good to be a slave in Epicurus's garden. It was basically, you were just a servant, uh, tending the garden. And they, um, they spent their days sort of um, reading, writing, cultivating the garden, chatting, conversing. And they lived communally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they put a great value on friendship. One of, one of um, Epicurus's constant refrains is that the most important thing in life for happiness is friendship by far. And I think that uh, I, I think there's something inspiring about that. Uh, both the, the, the value he places on friendship and also... Um, the 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 possibility uh, there of communal living, which actually I think could could usefully lead us to question whether we've really exhausted all the different forms of living that we 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 might try. Uh, in um, I, I guess in Australia, like in in America, like in Britain, where I'm from, the standard form of living is the nuclear family, where you know a family lives in a house and uh, and they belong to a community but living communally where perhaps you know 30 40 50 people live together and eat together and uh, and this kind of thing uh, is still uh, not very common however i think it 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 would be good if if we could experiment more with that kind of arrangement not that it's the 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 best or the only kind or anything like that but i think that one particular social problem that certainly afflicts um, many countries, many modernized countries today, is the loneliness of people in old age. Mm. And communal living could actually help that quite a bit, I think.
Well, I also think uh, another thing that can help that is I know that there's been studies where they're building preschools next to retirement villages. And so the, the elderly are, are looking after the, or not looking after the kids, but they're in a sense teaching the kids. And obviously the kids have got all the time for the elderly and they're finding that, that both sectors of your, know, both cohorts of people are actually really improving in all areas of their life because of that togetherness. Right. I've, I've read about that. That sounds like a, a great idea, a great experiment, because um, young children aren't particularly prejudiced against old people, and old people are really invigorated by contact with young people. Most definitely. Yeah. And Sorry. I was going to say also, uh, communal living, I think communal living is, is good for children too. Um, you know, I, th I think it's, um, it's really healthy to be growing up um, not some, you know, in a, in a real community, not too isolated. I mean, I think it can uh, it can help problems that you know that you get problems of child abuse and problems of of, um, of ch child alienation, of, of closed in syndrome, and all kinds of things like that. Well, it's interesting. Like when I look back at my childhood, the the happiest moments are when I'm I come home from school, drop the bag down, and then we we head out and play on the street together. And you know we didn't all live in a in a house of fifty people, but in that right. co in that cul-de-sac, there was like you know four other families that had kids, and we we were always out there playing together. And that was that was our little community, and and everyone kind of looking after each other. And we were competitive, and we were learning, and we were exploring, and we were climbing, and we were cutting ourselves, and we were trying not to let anyone know <laughs> yeah. about the trouble that we were getting into. But that was that to me was growing up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, th I think one. Um, if going back to the general theme of simple living, I mean, uh, uh, an interesting. Uh, aspect of it is is the extent to which it uh, it could could in some forms reinforce individualism, but in other forms it could counteract individualism, and that that's a, a tricky question. I mean, there is one kind of simple living where you know the the sort of a person um, goes off the grid. I, I um, uh, last year I I visited a friend in Washington State, and he'd. He'd bought a cabin, a kind of rather derelict old cabin in, in um, on the Washington-Idaho border. And he'd fixed it up and we went out there and it was great and it was very beautiful. And what was interesting was that there were quite a few cab of these log cabins scattered around the forest there. And many of them were built by returning Vietnam vets in the early 1970s who just wanted to get away from the madding crowd. And they, they bought a little parcel of land uh, in the forest and they built themselves a log cabin and they really just wanted to get out get away from it all and and that is one kind of simple living and yet there's a you can't help feeling there's an element of alienation there i mean they're, they're admirably self-sufficient they're admirably close to nature you know there's many things to admire and yet um you know if we go back to epicurus saying that the the the, the most important condition for happiness is friendship um then that that kind of individualism, uh, you know, is is at odds with that. On the other hand, uh, at the end of my book, um, when I talk uh, uh, towards the end, I talk about a little bit about um, economics and this kind of thing. And I actually think that one of the things that governments could do that would be really useful, which would uh, and and why the the philosophy of simple living and the philosophy of frugality is still very much relevant is I think that 
it would be it's a fine thing for governments to promote uh, policies and and cultivate amenities. Things like, um, for instance, universal health care, um, an absolutely adequate guaranteed old age pension, um, museums, parks, libraries, um, sports facilities, you know, all this kind of thing. In other words, public amenities, uh, which mean that people don't have to have everything as individuals. There's many goods that we could, as it were, we could enjoy while sharing. The way we share libraries and the way we share parks and the way you know public transport would be a good example of that but also if government take makes sure that the the basics of life the you know the the things like education things like transport things like healthcare are, are either free or very cheap then it takes away a lot of anxiety and um and i think that that aspect of simple living is is uh, counter to is counters the individualism of modern culture. Well, it's a very, I guess, socialist kind of way of living. <laughs> way of living. Yeah. Well, you know, like I, I was an exchange student in Sweden um, when I when I left high school in in ninety eight, and and in and in Sweden, like you, you pay high taxes, but you get a lot back from the government, and and the elderly are taken care of. You know, mothers are taken care of. Education is paid for. But when you travel the world, there are Swedes everywhere. Like they, the, the the leftover money is in a sense kind of play money. And and I, like I find when when I was traveling through America, it was through the um the pre elections there, and that was a, a very interesting time. But <laughs> yeah. but you know that that socialist point of view. Like I was amazed at how far back America is compared to like even where we are here in Australia with things like healthcare and and all of those kinds of things without kind of turning this into a, a political debate yeah but like what like for you like what is your like what does the modern day simple living <clears throat> pardon me what does the modern day simple living look like for you well uh, to be fair I think I think there are many different forms of it I mean, you know, I've just described one way, you, you know, one person could build themselves a log cabin in the wood, in the woods. Another person could um, uh, try and find, you know, try and live in, in a commune or something like that. And and if and living on a commune, um, you can live very, very cheaply. I mean, some people try, you know, would like try to live very cheaply. For me, personally, it's, um, you know, it's a matter of having the basics sort of taken care of that you know to try and alleviate kind of worries about you know this um but but also to some extent um holding holding materialistic desires in check and thinking very hard about what experiential goals i want to achieve um i mean in some ways i'm i'm kind of fortunate in that i uh, not only i'm fortunate in in you know, living a perfectly comfortable life in a modernized society, but also in that I um I don't have um particularly strong you know ambitions for possessing things. I don't want a second home. I don't want a sailboat. I don't want a private jet or anything or a fancy car or anything like that. I I um I'm I'm I love reading so much that really I mean to be honest, a perfectly perfectly happy day for me is to sit on the sofa with a cup of tea and a book <laughs> you know? and so obviously some people are going to say I'm a fairly boring person but you know that's uh, it's one of the uh, for me one of the great benefits of um, of education is if you get a good education you really are well stocked for life I um uh, you know you, you you can in fact um you know the, especially now in the age of the internet we have 
um, uh, you know, there on our computers on our cell phones, we have uh, all the great books of the world, pretty much all the great music of the world, all the great movies of the world. <laughs> you know, it's right there. We, mm. we, I mean, we live in a in a golden age of um, of access to culture, and and there's more books and more music and more movies than one could could relish in a lifetime. And you know, you know, speaking of kind of that that frugalness, and like if you ask someone, "Hey, would you like to save some money?" I think that the majority of people would answer almost always with a yes. But then when you sure. show them ways to be frugal, they might not follow them even if they would save money. Like, why do you think that is? Um, that's a good question. I think. Um, uh, let, let, take a take a good example. Actually, um, we I've just been me and my wife have just been booking some um, accommodation for our forthcoming trip to Australia, and we obviously we're trying to do it uh, more cheaply. We're not staying in five star hotels. We're looking at Airbnbs and that kind of thing, and yet we we do have certain uh, minimum standards. So um, you know, like everyone else, you you. Um, do we want to stay in a hostel or do we want to stay in a hotel? Do we want a shared bathroom or an ensuite bathroom? That kind of thing. One of the things that happens is you get used to certain um, fairly high standards and then you, you're not willing to drop below them. Uh, I love reading biographies of people in the past. And one of the things that's amazing is if, if you think of, uh, uh, for instance, one of my favorite philosophers, David Hume uh, from the 18th century. I remember reading a biography of him and one time he was traveling and uh, put up an inn, and he, he shared a bed with two other men, not a room, a bed with two other men who were staying there, right? And I'm sure they didn't change the sheets every night in those. And that was just a normal sort of, uh, that was normal accommodation for the time. Um, can you imagine that now? I mean, <laughs> the, the most frugal zealot you know <laughs> probably wouldn't agree to share a bed with two other guys uh, on, on, you know, dirty sheets. <laughs> We've raised our standards. I, 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 think, or, I think we might have raised them a little bit, yes. <laughs> or, but, but think about, for instance, uh, how, often, you know, how often do we wash our clothes now compared mm. to uh, the past? I mean, you know, people used to probably wear one shirt for a week and then change it for their second shirt. Mm. Now, you know, you wear something and wash it. So true. So I guess there is then a, a, lev a level of being frugal and, and that level might be different for everybody. Right, and I and I think um, it 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 becomes a little bit harder in some ways when when everyone when society's expectations uh, rise, and also when you've got rising rising living standards. So um, if you um, if you do sort of uh, if you are a bit of a frugal zealot and you you buy everything from the thrift store and this kind of thing, maybe. You know, at some fancy do, you know, you you stand out. Although I actually, I'll take that back because I actually think that you can you can get very very good clothes at thrift stores. <laughs> well, Emrys, I'm I'm very conscious of your time, and and I know that you've given me a lot here today. But um, before we go, I have one final question that I ask all of my guests, and you kind of sure. did allude to it a little bit earlier, so it'll be interesting. But it is, if you could please describe your perfect day. <laughs> Um, my perfect day. Uh, I think, uh, I would, I would, uh, I always get up very early. Uh, the first thing I always do is write for an hour or so. Uh, 
and I enjoy doing that. And then um, it would uh, it would involve a little bit of vegetable gardening. It would um, it might involve uh, some sport. I play um, I play a little bit of golf at a at a local nine hole course, and that's always very enjoyable. I also play squash, and that's uh, I enjoy that quite a lot as well. Uh, it would certainly involve um, reading. Uh, uh, you know, really good, say perhaps um, in the afternoon a bit of reading. Although, and that would that would be combined with an afternoon nap, I guess. And then in the evening, perhaps getting together with friends and having a, having a kind of din- you know social dinner party with good co- good conversation. Yeah, sounds like a good day. It really does. So when you when you do that writing for, when you first get out of bed each morning, is that you know writing for for new books or new ideas, or is it just journaling? What, what what what's uh, entailed in that hour? Usually, yeah, it's whatever I'm writing. Usually, right at the moment, I'm writing an article. Um, I might I was asked to write an article, for instance, on the um, what philosophers have said about luxury and extravagance, and so I'm working on that at the moment. Um, very sometimes I, I do I do some forms of creative writing, but often it's um, yeah philosophy articles, and um, just whatever I happen to be working on at the moment, I, I find um, it's just uh, for any aspiring writers out there. I mean, the only advice I would ever give anyone is just just write every day. If you write 100 words a day, which is in a very, very small amount, right, that's 3000 words in a month, which is something like um, 36,000 words in a year, which is, you know, getting towards book length. Mm. Good advice there. I think I might need to take you up on that. <laughs> but, yeah. mate, thanks again, Emerus, for your time and your wealth of knowledge when it comes to, <laughs> to this, this, um, this topic. And if people do want to reach out to you or say g'day, what's the best way for them to, to do that? Um, if, you go, if you Google my name, Emerus Westacott, you'll get to my personal web page, and it's got my email address there. Um, so you can just email, just, uh, email me. Yeah, perfect. Well, I will make sure that uh, that link to your website is in the show notes at liveimmediately.com. And I will also put, uh, you did allude to your visit coming here to Australia and you're actually speaking in my hometown of Newcastle, which is great. And I can't actually, I can't wait to, to meet you uh, in person. You're speaking at the Newcastle Writers Festival event on August 1, uh, August 1st at 6.30 p.m. But I will have a link to tickets uh, in the show notes of this episode at liveimmediately.com as well. But is there anything that I've, I've left out, Emerus, or anything you'd like to say before we uh, uh, say our goodbyes? Yeah, I'm, I'm also um, going to be at the Byron Bay R- R- Literary Festival. Uh, after the Newcastle event. Oh, perfect. Well, I'll make sure that I, I link to that as well. Uh, Byron Bay, you're going to love it up there. It's a beautiful, beautiful spot. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Emerus, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, have fun and live immediately. That was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. 
Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.